0: This show is about your mental health. While it's supported by the pillars of positivity and hope, if you find yourself in crisis, please reach out for help. In many communities in both the United States and Canada, you can dial 211 to be connected to mental health and crisis services in your region. While it may seem like it at times, you are not alone. Suicide is a final, fateful choice. At the time, those who know say it seems like the only choice. In the last few months of lockdown crisis lines have been overwhelmed by those saying they just don't want to live anymore just the thought of suicide or suicide ideation in people has increased exponentially ignoring it hiding it doing nothing these are not answers suicide let's talk about it right now on the happy molecule Hello, this is The Happy Molecule. I'm Kevin Frankish. It's a podcast aimed at improving your mental health. His name was Paul. He was 24 years old from Toronto. He spent his life struggling with demons, saved from a toxic family. He couldn't stop the hurt from following him through his life. He still turned to a bottle or worse from time to time. But he had support. And all those around him who tried to get him help felt... He was finally in a much better place. This past Christmas Eve, in fact, he texted a good friend. Miss you. See you soon. A few hours later, his body would be found in his bedroom. 2002, another young man, Mark Hennig, stood on the edge of a bridge in Sydney, Nova Scotia. One voice from a small crowd that had gathered shouted, Jump, you coward! And that seemed to confirm for him that he indeed had only one choice. And as he moved forward to step, that final step, a stranger in a brown coat who actually earlier had started a conversation with him, reached out his arms and pulled him back. Well, like Paul, Mark honestly felt this was indeed his only choice. Today, Mark Hennick has written a book, so-called Normal. He runs a company that teaches suicide prevention. He has become the stranger he encountered that night in Sydney, reaching out from the dark to save a life and he has saved many. Hello, Mark. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Kevin. I'm happy to be here. You have a, an incredibly compelling story and we'll get into that in, in just a moment. But first of all, I want to talk about the present and what you are doing now. Uh, you are the CEO of Strategic Mental Health Solutions. What is that?
1: So lately, the last few years, I've been focusing on uh, media advocacy primarily, uh, talking and and starting conversations about mental health in a variety of different environments. Um, I've been spending a considerable amount of time or a a considerable portion of that in workplaces uh, across Canada and in fact, around the world, uh, not only raising awareness of mental health, I think we're doing a good job of that, a relatively good job of that. Uh, in many workplaces now. But actually helping them to develop some strategies, some solutions for what do we do next? Okay, we're aware, great, what now? Uh, I think that's where uh, many companies and indeed that's where we are as a society uh, continuing to stumble is what do we do now? So that's what I try to help people do and that's what I've been you know, I, 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 I've dedicated my life to mental health work because I have no other transferable skills. This is all I
0: know how to do. <laughs> it sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. <laughs> um, yeah, and the reason I wanted to bring that up first is because I want to talk a little bit about this burgeoning industry that is mental health because you know and I know that we were already facing an incredible mental health crisis before COVID, But still, the stigma was there and it was something we don't talk about. Now it has grown exponentially and we're going to see more companies like yours and more people coming into the industry of mental health and trying to improve mental health.
1: I think so. And, you know, I've certainly seen an evolution over the years after I did my TEDx talk in 2013 and that went viral. I signed with a a speaking agency and I started getting booked for events and I had been speaking about my own personal lived experience since high school. Uh, I remember the very first time I wanted to speak openly about my depression and anxiety and my suicide attempts. I asked the principal of my high school if I could do that and he said no. uh, That if you talk about suicide it gives people the idea to go out and do it as though they had never thought of it before. I knew then that that wasn't true and and there is a right way and a wrong way to talk about suicide a safe way and an unsafe way um, but I knew that we needed to talk about it because uh, I, people told me all the time uh, about their struggles privately uh, and the side I knew that it was the silence that was killing them so um, from that moment uh, to now I think we've made great strides in that awareness and it has helped people to reach out uh, but we still have a long way to go
0: yeah I, and, and it's, it's interesting you should mention that because there were times I would try and bring suicide up on the air And I would get admonished for, for doing that by producers or, or other managers. Uh, I once had a doctor contact me from a hospital saying, you're just going to create copycats, but I agree with you. There is a right way and a wrong way. But at the same time, if we don't talk about it, and by the way, it has been proven that talking about suicide does not create copycats. I want to make that very clear, but it, it opens up an avenue for people who feel they're alone. To say, wait a minute, you mean
1: other people may feel this way? Now, the research on copycat suicides is is fuzzy in some ways. Mm-hmm. There does seem to be some correlation between uh, uh, inappropriate uh, mm-hmm. reporting on suicide. For example, uh, sensationalist or romanticizing the suicide or wall-to-wall coverage. You know, I, uh, On this point, I think about the comparison between how the death of Kurt Cobain was reported in the 90s when he died by suicide compared to the reporting on when Robin Williams died by suicide or uh, Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade. Uh, there there was definitely still a lot of reporting especially around robin williams but it was a different type of reporting and there was a moment when that happened uh, that, that this really clicked for me that things were changing when one of the major news outlets in the united states sent a helicopter uh, to have a live feed from over robin williams house and within uh, within the hour i think it was there was outrage on social mm-hmm. media Uh, that this was not only an invasion of their privacy, but it was in fact dangerous. It was that kind of sensationalization uh, of the suicide uh, that that could in fact lead to a contagion effect. Uh, On the credit of that news agency, they pulled the helicopter right away and they they changed their coverage as a result of that. That didn't happen uh, in the case of Kurt Cobain, and we did see a, a bubble at that time. So, you know, I think that the right way to talk about suicide in a public form, in a way that is constructive and gets people help, uh, is to set it in context, to remind people that there's very often mental illness present, especially depression. Uh, There are very often other factors present as well, socioeconomic factors in particular. Uh, and to leave people with a message of hope and inspiration, that nobody has to die by suicide, that it's always a tragedy, uh, and we can and should be doing a better job of preventing it.
0: You are already doing something uh, that has changed over the last decade or so, uh, and people may not even have noticed. Do you know what I'm referring to by chance? No, oh. my hair? No. <laughs> no, it's lovely. It's a lot longer
1: now.
0: <laughs> um, no, you, how you are referring to to die by suicide rather than to commit right. suicide. Tell me about that.
1: So I said that this actually goes right to the root of why I wanted to do uh, the TEDx Toronto talk back in 2013. It started as many of my... Um, Uh, initiatives do with me just being kind of irritated about something. Uh, And I think many creative people are kind of like this too. Something just niggles at the back of your brain somewhere, something bothers you uh, and you respond to it. So uh, for me, I was working as a clinician at the Canadian Mental Health Association. I was working in a program that supported 16 to 24 year old youth uh, who were dealing with mental health problems and illnesses. Just as an aside, I much later realized that I was trying to be the person that I needed at that age, uh, I think. But in the course of that, I was scrolling through the Wikipedia page uh, for suicide and just reading what they had, some of the research that they had been mm. including in the Wikipedia page. And I noticed that throughout the page, there was uh, commit suicide, commit suicide, commit suicide. Uh, and there were, there were references to, some, uh, to people who have failed attempts. Uh, in other words, they don't complete their attempt through my work with the Mental Health Commission of Canada on their board for years, through my work as a clinician, my education. And by, by uh, from, the way,
0: you were the youngest president of a provincial Canadian mental health association in history.
1: I was, yeah. I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for my entire professional mm-hmm. career, and, and it really started uh, there at, at the community mental health level. Uh, and in that context, everybody knows that suicide isn't a crime. And when you talk about would you use language of commit, people commit murder, they commit arson, they commit rape, uh, they don't commit suicide because suicide hasn't been a crime in Canada since the 70s. Uh, and it's not a crime in, in many jurisdictions around the world. So the language was factually incorrect. Uh, when I made those edits to Wikipedia, though, uh, to try to be both grammatically correct and, and factually correct, uh, I was met with a community very resistant uh, to that change. You know, they, they said, in the little talk page behind the Wikipedia page where people discuss what the content will be, they said, but it's not the common way of saying it. Well, truth doesn't have to be common. Correct doesn't have to be common. Uh, The right way to talk about suicide is dying by suicide, and that's what an online encyclopedia should be. So I lost that argument. Uh, They didn't include the edits in that article. Uh, and it, part of the reason for that was because that there weren't enough sources out there to support my position uh, that the that the proper way to refer to uh, to a suicide is death by suicide. So I had become the type of person over the years that if something doesn't exist, then build it. Uh, so I uh, happened to see uh, one of my friends had posted the nominations for this TEDx Toronto thing. Uh, I applied partly out of irritation that I needed to make a talk and put a talk out there that address this point of why we don't say commit suicide anymore, why we should be saying die by suicide. Uh, I was accepted into it. We did the talk and then, you know, the, the rest is history. It goes on to go viral all around the world. Uh, and now I, I think, I hope, a lot more people know that distinction, that suicide is not a crime. It's a public health disaster uh, in many ways, uh, but it's one that calls for health care, not for, for a, a, a punitive uh, type system
0: let's get back to that talk then so this is 2013 how old were you in
1: 2013 uh I don't, well, what's the reverse math i don't know <laughs> it's seven years ago mark. something like that it's i don't seven know seven years ago mark <laughs> whatever <laughs> <laughs> I'm a writer and a speaker, <laughs> not some fancy mathematician who can count seven. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you now, Mark? <laughs> Thirty-three now. I okay. hardly even remember. Take that. away this. So that's 20, you were twenty. You were
0: twenty-six. Okay. Um, okay. So you were twenty-six. You went to do this TEDx talk in Toronto. It's been viewed millions of times, by the way. Um, what was the t- the talk was about? You as well. So pick up the story there.
1: Yeah, it was. So uh, I wanted to, and this is really what I've done. I've refined it greatly over the years. Uh, and I'm one of those people that that uh, whenever I watch my own work, uh, I'm the mo- I'm my biggest critic, uh, I think. so it, I don't think it actually, uh, you know, in retrospect, was my finest piece of public speaking that I've ever done, but it did seem to connect with a ton of people because I went out onto the stage and uh, and I just, I shared two stories about some of the most vulnerable times in my life. When I was uh, actively suicidal, I, I kind of bookended the stories. The, the first one that I tell was uh, my, one of my very first suicide attempts. The second story that I tell ended up being my last, although I didn't know it was going to be my last until much, much later. Uh, and uh, and I, I talk about some of these things that I'd learned both through my education and through working in, in community mental health advocacy uh, about mental health. It turns out, I think, and this happens when there's a relative void of information, when there's just not enough people being that real, that honest uh, with people, is that it really struck a chord that it turned out people from all over the world had felt what I felt, uh, or very similar feelings when I recounted the story of climbing over the railing of a bridge ready to end my life, Uh, and then the stranger who saved my life. You know, if, if it wasn't for that TEDx talk, I actually never would have found out who that stranger was. You I found
0: out you found out that, out found out that person.
1: We did. So this was actually after. The, I, I, the I made a,
0: I'm, I'm getting a bit of ahead of myself here, so I want to get back to that. Sure. Let's talk about that first attempt. What happened? What were you feeling?
1: Uh, I now realize uh, that at the very early stages, I, um, you know, I, I think my, and this isn't uncommon, my suicidality, my depression, my, my social anxiety disorder that I was diagnosed with at the time, it started well before uh, my first uh, suicidal ideation and suicide attempts. Um, through the course of writing my book, I was able to actually track because I pulled all my, my medical records um, and my school records, and I was able to track when the symptoms started to really happen kind of as, a, as an objective observer. Uh, and I now know that I probably started experiencing symptoms, formal symptoms of depression uh, and anxiety as young as about 10 years old. And, and then by the time okay, I was so 12.
0: Why do you know that it was 10 years old? What, what, what was in your record? What happened?
1: Yeah, and you know, these aren't um, discrete uh, um, timelines by any means. I think it, they fade into one another, but when I looked back at uh, the declines in my grades, the transitions uh, that I was experiencing at the time, uh, my father left when I was very young, and then we moved in with, uh, with, with my stepfather, and that turned out to be an incredibly emotionally uh, abusive uh, relationship and situation. Um, I was routinely received the message that I had to be a man, even though at that time, you know, I was eight years old when we moved in. Um, I, I was just a little boy, but I was told that boys don't cry. That I had to be a man. I had to suck it up. I can't express any emotion. Uh, so then, by the time I get to about ten years old, when my grades are starting to to tank, uh, I'm starting to withdraw more. Uh, I, I'm feeling, you know, all these things inside that I'm not allowed to express they say that depression is hate turned inward and i think that's what happened i couldn't express these things outward so it started to collapse inward in on me and this is one of the um concepts i think probably the core concept of my ted talk uh, that people really grabbed onto was this idea of the collapse this perceptual collapse that happens inside your mind inside your your psyche when you're extremely depressed and becoming suicidal everything just gets tighter and darker and more rigid until there's only this one point uh, where you think you need to die in order to escape. And it doesn't matter if there are other options because you can't see them, because you've been so collapsed in this survival mode with the blinders on that that seems like the only option. I think that was happening to me through, you know, from the ages of, of 10 to 12 uh, until I actually did start expressing suicidal ideation at, uh, in uh, when I was 12 years old.
0: Your first thoughts of suicide to the first attempt How long was that? What ages?
1: Not very long. So I think uh, you know, uh, late late twelve years old to early thirteen years old. So Mm -hmm. it didn't. It progressed fairly quickly once you know. Once the first domino fell, um, I've kind of likened it to a to a downward spiral, or I say in the book, you know, circling the drain. That there's this iterative effect uh to to my depression and anxiety and suicidality so the very first time i was in a fight with my stepfather uh that morning i've I've come to think of these as kind of uh, as trivial triggers that when you've got all this pressure built up inside you sometimes it doesn't take very much to to push that first domino or to prick that balloon because you're already so raw and emotional so it was a it was a disagreement with my stepfather i got to school late that day um, I had missed most of the period in which I was supposed to be writing a social studies test. And then for whatever reason, I, I had started to dissociate in my mind anyway, which is where th- that's your your mind's way of protecting you uh, from a painful present, is that it makes your mind just float away somewhere else. It's your brain's way of saying, this is too much for me right now. You can stay, but I'm going to head out for a bit. Mm-hmm. That's That's your brain's way of protecting you. Uh, and that had started to happen to me anyway. So I, I I would have these these moments where I wouldn't remember where I was or I couldn't remember you know, studying for the test, which I had, because I had previously identified as a pretty smart kid. Uh, so I remember sitting down at my desk, having absolutely nothing in my head, just being completely blank. And then like on autopilot, I drew 10 little pictures in the margins of the blank test that I couldn't remember any of the answers to. And they turned out to be 10 different ways that I could end my life. And that was the very first time that the thoughts that I think had been swirling around in some form in my head uh, for at least two years by that point, that was the very first time they came out of my head uh, and into the world was that when I drew those those little pictures on my on my test. If, if
0: 2020 Mark could go back and talk to, to young Mark. at. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you what you would say at two different points. One, the first time when you sat down and you were drawing those pictures, and the and and then maybe talking to Mark at the moment where you felt there was no other choice. Yeah. What did what do you know now? What have you learned that you could say to young Mark?
1: You know, this is something that I've thought about this a lot. This is something that I think I. I'm not sure I would have listened to me <laughs> then. Uh, I wouldn't listen to present-day me, but if I could communicate to that, to that uh, young man, to that kid, little boy, anything, uh, it might be that, yeah, this is, this is gonna suck. This is really hard. And that might sound like a strange thing to say to a little kid, but I think the, what I wanted more than anything was somebody to validate the feelings that I was feeling, that it, that it wasn't meaningless, it wasn't trivial, that this little test might seem insignificant to everybody else, but this was my whole world. Uh, and I felt like a failure. I felt stupid. I felt useless. I felt hopeless and helpless increasingly, which is the toxic mix for suicidality. So I think I would, I would validate myself that this, this is really hard, and I'm sorry that it's so hard. You've been through so much, um, but it won't, it won't always be this way. I think that's what I would want the the older me to know that it that it won't always be this hard. That's that's powerful.
0: That's very powerful. You know, because I think we we all need to be told that whether or not we have thoughts of, of of taking our own life or or just simply have thoughts of depression, that you know what, it's not always going to be this hard. But you you hit a, a wall, don't you? You hit a wall yeah. and you can't see beyond that wall, and you're just saying. I've got no other choice right now.
1: Yeah, because I think suicide isn't about ending your life. People don't people don't uh, attempt or or die by suicide because they want to die necessarily. I mean, I'm sure that there are probably a small number that are that are that, um, but in the vast majority of cases uh, of in people that I've talked to, that I've counseled, that have connected with me as a result of the TED talk, um, people just don't want to f- to keep struggling. They can't carry that weight anymore. You know, I was raised uh, in a, a Newfoundland version of Irish Catholicism, uh, where it was very common to hear that maybe this is just my cross to bear. Well, I didn't want to bear. You. I didn't want to bear this cross. I'm not the Christ. I had a dream about that once, uh, where I had this demon speak to me. I, I, it's a scene in the book, actually. Um, I, I was in junior high school, I think, and I'm um, trapped uh, on a school bus that just drives up and down the same road over and over again. Uh, and then this demon turns around and says to me you are not the christ i felt like i had to be the messiah if i was ever going to carry this burden because i felt like there was nobody else there who could even see the burden that i was carrying let alone help me carry it
0: what happened what what went wrong from the time you were 10 years old how did and i don't want to just generalize and say society, but. How did we fail you? How did we fail, young Mark?
1: Well, I think there's a, a combination of factors here. One is that, um, you know, my mother worked in the healthcare system for thirty years as a nurse, uh, but she wasn't a nurse at home. She wasn't a healthcare provider at home. She was a parent, uh, and I think that parents, both of that time and now, just don't have the the tools that they need. They're not raised often, uh, even talking about their own emotions. So as a result, you know, I, I tell people this all the time, little kids are born with feelings just by default. They're born with often strong feelings, but they're not born with the words for those feelings. That's something that you have to learn later on, the, that you, you apply labels to all the stuff that's happening in you. If your parents don't know how to do that, if your teachers don't know how to do that in an intentional, explicit, overt way, then you're just going to pick it up as you go by watching how other people manage their emotions or, or don't. Uh, and that's how I think depression and anxiety and mental illnesses can be intergenerational, uh, that you pick up the things that you see around you. So I think that's, uh, one of the first failures that we're that we're still consistently replicating is that we're not recognizing those very early most basic skills in terms of naming and labeling your emotions and then dealing with them that that's that's as uh, just about as far upstream as we can go that later can prevent suicide and severe and persistent mental illness because we can divert so many people from ever going down that road. Uh, There are programs already that exist that, that help people do this. This isn't rocket science, but for some reason, we're still not getting our act together and teaching emotional literacy in an effective way in schools and with parents and in all aspects of society, workplaces especially.
0: I'm talking with Mark Hanick. He is the principal and CEO of Strategic Mental Health Solutions, or a consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations and individuals move from basic mental health awareness towards meaningful, measurable action. He's also uh, a TED Talker. And you have a book coming up. The uh, book is called So-Called Normal, a Memoir of Family Depression and Resilience, HarperCollins, uh, coming out in January. That book, I guess, is a, is is sort of, like you said before, the TED Talk was sort of done on a whim, and since then you have refined and refined and refined. So this is the product of, of, of seven years of talking about this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really the product of my entire life. Um, Uh, You know, when I I, uh, got the book deal originally, and I think I'd been tossing it around in my mind for ages, but when I finally got the book deal, it kind of just languished on the side of my desk for a while. I was uh, you know, I had a high ranking position within a national mental health charity. Uh, and then eventually I just came to the realization that this is what I need to do. This is what I'm being called to do is to write this book. So I, I took a risk. I left that job, didn't really know what I was going to going to do. Uh, and I wrote the book. I went away to a Trappist monastery in the woods for more than a month. And I wrote the first first draft. You to did this seriously. not
0: go to a Trappist monastery. <laughs>
1: I did and you I went back did. several times actually. Wow. Yeah, so I, I uh, went and I took it seriously. I think wow. any you know, I can be a bit I can be a bit much. I can yeah. be a bit intense. So uh, I go all in on these things. I, I I lived with these monks for for more than a month. Uh, I went and chanted with them five times a day uh, and I wrote for 10 hours a day every day for a month. I went deep uh, into this book. Um, You know, I shared a couple of pictures while I was doing that first draft, just Instagram and stuff. I I didn't really do much social media during that time, but every now and then I'd pop in to let people know that, you know, I'm okay, I'm just delving deep into recesses of my psyche here, but everything is good. Um, And it was such an extraordinary experience to go back and read what my doctors wrote about me uh, and read all these documents that I had never seen before. And then most importantly, I think, to see the, the, the narrative that nobody else saw at the time to see logically, oh yeah, of course that happened the way that it did. Uh, if you actually look at all the medical records laid out in front of you, it made perfect sense.
0: How easy was it to get these records, your school records, your health records? Because I think right now, you know, it's almost like I'm thinking to myself, perhaps one of the best therapies you could do is pretend to write a book on your life and do some research on yourself.
1: It's not for the faint of heart. I will say that that when I, I should say that when I went into this process, um, part of the reason why I needed to go away and just delve, you know, like like Dante descending into the inferno, I had to just go all in on it. Was that I needed to do it safely. I needed to know that if I'm going to go in and re-experience these emotions, yeah. and I very much did, uh, that I needed to know that I could keep walking through it and eventually come out the other side in a way that I had never done before. Uh, not everybody is ready to do that yet, uh, it's not easy to do either, um, but I, I think that if, if you can set up your, your uh, situation well enough to be able to do it, it was by far one of the most transformative experiences for me, because I got to, I got to choose the narrative, uh, that I, I got to make my story make sense, uh, which is incredibly liberating. When you realize that nobody else can tell you what your story is, that you get to take all the separate pieces and put them together and find the thread. That's what identity is, is finding the meaning in your life. It was, it was absolutely extraordinary for me.
0: You put a disclaimer on your life. You, you just sort of said a uh, warning. Some of the scenes may be disturbing to some, uh, to some viewers.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, they, they can be, yeah. uh, but this comes back to that point of context that people's struggle doesn't happen for no reason. I really believe that. Now, not, you know, you might apply some supernatural or religious meaning to that, but um, for others it's that everything is, everything takes on meaning in relative context to everything else. That there's a connection uh, between everything. Uh, and, and that's, and if there isn't, then we create a connection between things. And that's what I was able to see in, in writing the book. And a lot of it is really hard, uh, but it's real. And I wouldn't be who I am if not for who I was.
0: Now this caveat you give about being careful about, you know, do you really want to read this? It's vital. It's important. However, when I, when I was posing the, the question about how easy it was, although I'm glad you said that I know how easy it was to get your own records from doctors, from yeah. schools.
1: So that was an interesting uh, journey. The medical records actually really weren't that difficult at all. Uh, um, I think that there was some, my mother at the, at the time was uh, a bit hesitant for me to do that. But I think her primary worry was that she didn't want me to dig up all this stuff mm-hmm. again, uh, which, you know, that wasn't completely unfounded because had I not done it the way that I did, I very easily could have slipped into, back into yeah. that place again. Uh, although I think I'm a, I'm a different person now than the person I read about in those notes. So that helped a lot too. Um, So the medical records were fairly easy to get Um, back when uh, after I did the TED talk and I had the urge to find this stranger that I talk about in the TED talk who saved my life. um, I applied to have my police records uh, released because every time I attempted suicide and a variety of my other crises, police were called because there was nobody else to call. Uh, so I thought, okay, surely then there would be records of this. And uh, particularly for this stranger who literally pulled me off a bridge one night, uh, there were tons of police uh, who had arrived. Surely he would have given a report and somebody would have put down his name. Um, it turned out that the police don't like having their records read <laughs> because they, they declined my initial request. Uh, and they declined it on a bunch of, you know, they threw in a bunch of references to uh, I think the Youth Criminal Justice Act and privacy laws. Yeah, privacy from dis- yourself. Well, this <laughs> yeah, was just it. So yeah. this was it. They said they can't disclose the records because it deals with a minor. And I wrote them a strongly worded letter back and said, "I, I am a minor. minor." Yes. And it actually it actually says in the law, you know, thank you, uh, uh, lawyer Google, because it's not hard to find. You read the law. It says unless it's about the person who's wow. making the request. So I sent that back to them. They didn't answer, or or they declined it again. Uh, I went to a Freedom of Information Act request. I appealed it. Uh, The adjudicator very clearly sided with me, said, yeah, obviously these are his records and he can have them. Um, So they they eventually sent them to me. It didn't even matter by the end anymore because I had already, by this point, found other ways of finding that stranger. Uh, But just to close the loop on that story, they eventually did send me the records. Uh, There was no reference...
0: Please that. turn off all cell phones, yes. ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> during the
1: show. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. So just to close the loop on that story, they, they uh, eventually did send me the, the records. There was no reference whatsoever to this guy who saved my life, who pulled me off the edge of a bridge, which I thought was a bit curious. Uh, and there were also, interestingly, very clearly records missing because I had my medical records. I had records from the emergency room uh, in which the police brought me there. Uh, but then they didn't have a matching police record of that same date in the medical records so i knew that the the police uh, weren't being forthcoming with my records i don't know why i don't know what was in there and maybe i'll never know Um, but at the end of the day i was able to piece my story together based on a variety of different sources uh, in addition to people who were there and who shared their their stories with me too but you know i'm not i'm not a journalist uh (laughs) you know like yourself but uh, it, it was a nice taste of it, I think, for me, of investigative journalism in my own life.
0: What about school records?
1: School records I was able to, to pull as well and, uh, you know, to be able to see the struggles that my teachers had, uh, you know, with with me and then a fear, one of the one of the teachers had said, I, I included this in the book, uh, after one, it was after a, um, a spate of hospitalizations. I think I was in the hospital three times in, in three months or something like that, like it three quick um, hospitalizations. Uh, and one of the teachers expressed a concern, you know, if Mark goes to the bathroom uh, during class and he doesn't come back in five minutes or 10 minutes, you know, what do we do? Wow. That's that's how scared they were, you know, that that we don't know if he just left or, or killed himself or did something else. So um, I think I came to an appreciation through writing the book that I never really had before. Uh, the the unintentional, uh, but still very present collateral damage that I was having on people who cared about me. Uh, And there's a certain guilt, uh, I think, in having that discussion. But it's also very real. It's something that caregivers know that it's exhausting to care for somebody who has a mental illness.
0: We're going to talk about the stranger. But you know what, folks? I'm going to keep it to the end to keep you listening right now, though. I want to get to the me three. three. The me three a chance for my guests to come up with just three very simple things that you can do to improve your mental health three simple things that that my guests have have learned through their experience and uh i'm interested very interested to see what you've come up with for your my uh me three what's your first one
1: notice you have to notice what you're feeling notice your internal state at any given time and you know what even set i do this myself if you have a, um, a watch with an alarm or on your phone or whatever set a reminder mm-hmm. uh, multiple reminders uh, throughout the day or put you know tie a tie string on your finger or whatever it is that helps you to remember things at random times just to check in really quickly literally takes that. five seconds what am i feeling right now uh, 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 and how am I dealing with it? And then that's it. Leave it uh, go. I love that the idea. More, the more you do it, the more you learn to actually check in with yourself and notice what you're feeling. That is a key fundamental core skill in both uh, helping yourself through difficult times, mm-hmm. but especially in maintaining good mental health.
0: Yeah. It, and, and I mean, it doesn't take any time at all. Really. You're just asking you, we keep talking about being present and it's, it's a, it's an important step in, 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 in good mental health, but. We never seem to have time for it. But if we set an alarm and it says, just, just be in the present moment for now, if, even if it's just for yeah. one second, what, is, what, it, what do I feel? What do I see? What do I smell? What do I hear? Okay, now I can move on with my day instead of saying, oh, yeah. I'll do that later.
1: And it doesn't even have to be a big meditation yeah. or a big thing. Or it's just literally, huh, I'm feeling anxious right now. I'm feeling stressed right now. Or even more importantly, and this is a key piece, I think, I'm feeling really happy right now. I think so often we have this tendency to just ignore our happiness and assume that that's the way that it's supposed to be, that that's normal, that that's default. Therefore, we shouldn't pay attention to it. And we only pay attention to our strong, difficult emotions, yeah. our anger, our depression, our sadness, whatever it is,
0: our anxiety, the result or of that, about, however.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the result of that, however, is that it reinforces the negative stuff. And then since you're not reinforcing the positive stuff, that, that muscle in your mind doesn't grow. So you need to be able to notice especially uh, the good things, the positive feelings as well. Number two. When you notice those uh, positive feelings in particular, amplify them, spend time with them, enjoy them. You know, that amplification. Uh, of the the uh, positive emotions that you notice. You need to do that because you need to give your mind a break. If you don't, I tell the people this all the time, you're going through a really stressful time in your life or you're just carrying a lot of really difficult emotions. If you don't stop yourself, your body, your mind will stop you. Uh, it's this way of regaining equilibrium that your brain has this evolutionary imperative to keep itself alive. That's almost its only function is to keep itself alive. So in order to do that, it needs sleep, it needs food, it needs to be able to reset itself, to clean itself out, that it can't always be in this hyper stressful place. One of the ways that we can do that is by practicing gratitude, by noticing and amplifying the good things that we have, because that gives us our, our brain a little break from being so stressed out all the time. Don't worry, your stress will still be there waiting for you later. You can come back to it, but you can put it in a little box in your mind, put it over here for a minute, and then just enjoy your day. It can be incredibly therapeutic. It it,
0: it is a great suggestion, but I want to tell you why it scares me. And I'm going to share a little story with you about that. So I I do try and actually practice that, but I've noticed that when I do it almost comes to me like you know that that caffeine high you get if you haven't eaten. It comes to me in that way, and I finally figured, it and, and it's not a good feeling. So if I'm happy, and I'm reflecting on that and amplifying that, I, I've realized that I don't allow myself to be
1: happy. And you're not Irish Catholic. Are you,
0: are you? <laughs> Catholic, yes. So <laughs> yeah, exactly,
1: my friend. <laughs> my friend. I have original sin on my shoulders so this is this is such a good point that i think and i see this all the time i experience this with um with uh treatment resistant depression with long-term depression i I until very recently um was still undergoing treatment for depression so just i didn't have some hallelujah moment when that Mm -hmm. man saved my life i still struggled for most of my life in fact i've had depression for longer than i haven't in my life Uh, but the reason why i mentioned that is that um when you start to experience happiness uh, if you do pay attention to it, sometimes there's these feelings of guilt. You know, I shouldn't feel mm-hmm. this way. I don't deserve to be this happy. Yes, you do. Why don't you? Everybody deserves to be happy.
0: That is yeah, that is something you and, and it's sad, but I have to convince myself of that
1: and And that, I think is uh, good information. All behavior, all thoughts, all feelings are information, it's data. If you feel guilty or hesitant or um, that you don't want to for whatever reason engage that happiness that tells me that that's exactly what you need to be doing more of that because that's a weak that's a weak mental muscle or an underdevelopmental muscle uh, the better you get at it, the more natural it becomes. Just like exercising at the gym. It kind of hurts at first. <laughs> it's difficult at first, but you add more complexity, more weight to it. And, and the better and stronger you get. It's the exact same thing with your emotional fitness as well. The more you practice joy, practice gratitude. It's hard at first, but the better it gets, the stronger it gets and the more rewarding it gets as well.
0: All right. Number three.
1: Uh, we, I think it's important to connect uh, what you're feeling, especially in those joyful moments, to all the things that are happening around you at the time. This is a little more complicated, so I'm gonna explain okay. what I mean in terms of this connection process. Um, you're feeling good for whatever reason. You don't have to judge it, there's there's no particular uh, reason why, but you're feeling really good. Uh, take a moment when you're feeling in that really good place, like you're really on, Notice the temperature in the air, the light, the way the light comes through the window. Uh, notice your, the different smells, the different sensations, even the different objects that are around you wow. in the room at the time. Why that's important to do, we know from conditioning, from, from decades, decades of research on conditioning, is that you're then potentially creating associations with other seemingly neutral stimuli around you at the time. Now, does that mean that you're going to see uh, the garbage can that's sitting next to you and it's going to spark joy or trigger (laughs) happiness? Well, no, probably not. But the cumulative effect of associating all these neutral things with that positive emotion, the more you practice it, the more you'll notice that it'll start to elevate your mood. Because it comes back to that point that when you're depressed, in particular, Mm. if you're going to the extreme end or the clinical end, when you're depressed and anxious, uh, we know that your brain is scanning the world, your attention is skewed to all the things that can go wrong. Uh, you're scanning the world for th- threats, you're looking at the world more negatively. The only way to counteract that is to practice uh, looking at the opposite. That trains your brain through neuroplasticity, through, through cognitive restructuring, uh, to actually reverse the course. Uh, to change your attention. Uh, Sean Acker has a wonderful uh, TED talk on, on happiness in which he talks about this too. You practice gratitude for uh, three, three things that you're grateful for every day for 30 days. And research has shown that by the end of that 30 days, your brain starts to get used to it, to scanning the world to look for things to be grateful for. You know, does that mean that depressed people are ungrateful for things? No, of course not. It just means we need more practice and we can become uh, better at finding things to be grateful for. And what's better than the feeling of gratitude? I mean, come on, feeling uh, feeling that you're either blessed or, or uh, that you're deserving, that you're worthy. That's just a, everybody uh, can and should feel that. And, and you can prime yourself wow. to feel those emotions.
0: And, you know, it's funny you use the word opposite because what hits me is that with my anxiety and my depression, I can be sitting in a chair or something and I'm just feeling anxious. And I'm feeling yeah. I'm feeling that that the anxiety I I, I I don't know why, you know, there's no particular reason until I start to, you know, and I, and I try and track down where my anxiety comes from. And sometimes it can take me three or four minutes of tracking down. Okay, I did this, I did that, I thought about yeah. this, and then you realize it was something really small, but you're still anxious about it.
1: But yeah, one of but, those one of those trivial. Triviors, yeah, but yeah. even
0: though I'm not still thinking about that, that residue, that residue carried through, and I knew I had to be anxious and stressed, but I didn't know why. But I just knew I had to be. So-
1: well, So And there's two things happening here. One is the spiral or the chain. Mm-hmm. I noticed this with the book, too, that memories are sticky. It's like a barrel of monkeys. One seemingly meaningless thing happens, and then it pulls out this other thing, and then this other thing, and then this other thing, until suddenly you're way down on something else that didn't even have anything to do with the original trigger, uh, and you're in that shame spiral or that anxiety spiral. Um, uh, one of the ways that I like to use to break out of that is that I, I take that same, those same three things that I just mentioned, noticing your feelings, amplifying the good ones and connecting the good ones with other neutral stimuli in your environment. Um, at that second point, when you're having that, you notice those negative feelings. What's usually happening there is that you're clinging to them for whatever mm-hmm. reason that it's trying. Those negative pr- feelings are serving, they serve a function. They're trying to do something. They're trying to express something. But sometimes our cognitive habits are such that we chase them. We chase that dragon all the way down the spiral until we feel way worse at the end than we did at the beginning. So instead, rather than amplifying the negative, we can actually just let it be. This goes back to the advice that I would give to my little kid self. It's okay for things to suck. It's okay Mm -hmm. to feel anxious. It's okay to feel terrible. Just let it feel terrible. You don't have to cling to it. You don't have to give it meaning. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to chase it. Just let it be, hold it lightly, uh, and let it leave you too. I think, I think that so often we cling to the negativity because we think we need it. We cling to our own depression in, a, in this weird kind of um, master-slave dialectic. We think that we need it. We don't, a- and we can release it from us. Now, easier said than done. It takes a whole lot of practice, but that's where it starts. Noticing the negative emotion, letting it be negative, uh, and then we practice this thing from dialectical behavior therapy and mindfulness and a number of other traditions of acceptance and change. Yes, I accept this negative emotion. Now I can let it leave me. I think that's a, a, a very powerful skill for dealing with
0: negative emotion. All right, let's get to the stranger here. So, uh, you um, were thinking about taking your own life. Uh,
1: I was. I was actively in the process of taking yeah. my own life. Yeah.
0: And pick a, uh, tell tell me what happened. With a stranger,
1: I had climbed over the railing of a, a bridge in my hometown in Sydney, Nova Scotia. It was a it was a, an overpass that stretched over the property of an old steel plant. And why I mentioned that because I now realize how significant that place was for me. Uh, and I think it was because when I looked out over this old steel plant, you know, this used to be the industrial capital of the eastern seaboard. They used to create uh, produce steel during both world wars for uh, for the entire eastern seaboard for the war effort. Uh, But by the time I was growing up, the plant was still there, but it was mostly shut down. It it was mostly abandoned. It was collapsing and falling down. It's one of the worst toxic waste sites in North America. And I realized that as I looked out over that that property, uh, that abandoned toxic property, it's exactly how I felt inside. And I felt like I didn't have any person who really understood that, but this place understood me. And I had talked to so many doctors over the course of uh, the, the couple of years that it took to get to that, that inch and a half or so of concrete that I was standing on o- over the ground, ready to kill myself, uh, that I felt like all the, if all these smart people, these psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers, and if all these smart people can't help me, then maybe it means I'm unhelpable. Maybe I'm not fixable. You know, Maybe I'm just one of those unlucky few uh, who are cursed with this thing for the rest of my life. Uh, As I was spiraling down that that pathway of thoughts you know that I that I that that process of spiraling that I mentioned or that collapse um, I was interrupted by a man's voice uh, over my shoulder and and I don't I don't remember him arriving or hearing him uh, you know stop his car behind me or anything like that because I was so hyper focused uh, collapsed in this place Uh, he just walked up behind me and in a very Cape Breton way is the way I think of it he said you don't look like you're doing so good there. <laughs> and I was on the I was on an inch and a half of concrete, thirty feet probably above the ground. It's 15 years old. Uh, it was almost midnight on a Sunday night in March. Uh, it was cold. I remember. And what I remember most about that stranger who came up behind me, I couldn't see him because the way that I was I was holding the railing behind me. Uh, I I had glanced behind and I saw that he was wearing a light brown jacket all the time. That's all the, or, or, or at the time. That's all I could remember. Um, But what I do remember about what he said to me was that he didn't sound like one of these dozens of health professionals that I had talked to over the years. You know, I had been through the revolving door of the hospital so many times. I was one of those kids that the more help they need, the less help they get. Mm -hmm. I'd become a frequent flyer by that point where I just got kind of written off, I felt like. Mm -hmm. Um, But this guy didn't sound like any of those people. Because he didn't ask me about my diagnosis or he didn't ask me about my medication or my therapy or uh my symptoms or any of that stuff he just talked to me i I think about my cat and like about my and my hobbies and my family and my interests and my friends and what i like to do the stuff that i was passionate about it was just a regular conversation Uh, but that was so it was so unusual Uh, For me both. I think in that circumstance uh, and just generally in my life to have somebody who seemed to be genuinely interested in getting to know me I think that's really what kept me on that edge for longer than I wanted to be because I was having this Conversation even though he was doing most of the talking Uh, Until then, you know as as my perception relaxed a little bit I realized that the the police had arrived Uh, they had set up barricades on either side of the bridge and crowds uh, had gathered uh, at either side of the barricade, because in small towns, you listen to the police scanner to see if there's any action uh, happening mm-hmm. that you can go check out. And I think that's what what happened there.
0: And you managed to track him down.
1: I did. So uh, after the police had arrived at that, uh, that night on the bridge, uh, among the crowds, there's a group of young men. Uh, and I, I was never sure if it was kind of the out-of-tune radio sound that was always happening in my head or... Uh, or if it was real, but I could swear to this day that one of them shouted out to me to jump, uh, and he called me a coward. And when that guy on the sideline said that, I let go of the railing and I started to fall because that was that trigger, right? Mm -hmm. That was that, uh, I just, this is why I don't want to be here because of people like that who are so um, unconcerned with connecting with people. It didn't matter that I had the stranger in the light brown jacket there spending time with me and getting to know me. Uh, So when I let go, it was the stranger then behind me uh, who reached out and grabbed me and saved my life. Um, I was sent back to the hospital again, uh, I think for a 24-hour hold or something. I didn't really get any. There were no changes to my care, but when I was discharged the next day, I couldn't help but ruminate uh, is is probably the best word for it on uh, the image of these two men uh, who were with me that night these two complete strangers who were both watching the exact same situation unfold in front of them but they had two very mm-hmm. different responses to the same circumstance one chose to be on the sidelines and to shout out and call me a coward and tell me to jump but then the other guy chose to have my back and to reach out and literally save my life and i think that was the very first kind of proto-revelation for me. Uh, it was the very seed of it where I realized that I got to choose in my life which of those two men I wanted to be like, the one who stood on the sidelines or the one who had people's backs. And when I ultimately chose to be like the stranger who had my back, who saved my life, that's really when things started to spiral upward for me, I think, in, in very small steps. It wasn't a hallelujah moment for by any
0: means. You met him?
1: We did. It wasn't until about 10 years later that when I talk about that spiral, that mm-hmm. recovery spiral, recovery is weird. It takes a long time and there's lots of setbacks and you don't even realize how far you've come until you look back. And that moment didn't come for me until about a dozen years later when I had this overwhelming urge to find this stranger who by then I talked about in the TED talk. Um, I pulled all the records and I didn't get anywhere with the records requests. So I went on television because I'd been doing television and and media for more than a decade. By that point, Uh, I went on Canada AM, which was then, of course, Canada's most watched morning show. I told the story. Um, They showed a clip of the TED talk. I asked for the public's help on social media, on Twitter and Facebook to find this stranger who all I knew was that he was wearing a light brown jacket at the time, sometime a dozen years earlier, and he pulled me off a bridge. And within about an hour, People started sending me messages that, you know, this thing went viral all mm-hmm. over the world. And then people sent me messages that they knew who I was talking about. One who said that he was his roommate at the time, that he came home and told him about what happened. Another who said he was his uh, brother-in-law, I think, and that they had shared the story in the family for a long time. Uh, and apparently, uh, the stranger in the light brown jacket had seen my TED Talk for the first time in which I talk about him a week before I went on national television. Yeah. And a week before I went on national TV to look for him, he had already written me a letter in case someday he ever found me. So (laughs) I don't know if I believe in fate or what, but I've got an awful lot of evidence to support it.
0: Whether Uh, it's, you know, I I don't know, whatever you call it, it, whatever it is, it's meant to be, like, period. Whatever it is. So he
1: he sent me Mm -hmm. the letter and uh, he introduced himself. His very first words were, hi, Mark, my name is Mike. And when I found out his name, I think that's when it really hit me that, that he was real. Mm-hmm. And that if, if this guy was real who'd been just a superhero in my mind for all these years, uh, it meant that my story was real too. And that's all that I ever wanted was to feel seen.
0: And you, you said you did meet physically.
1: We did. Yeah. So a few weeks after that, we flew him up to Toronto and, uh, uh, put him up in a, a beautiful uh, suite at the Shangri-La Hotel in downtown Toronto. You know, five star hotel. Mm. And the only reason I mention it is because uh, when you tell people a really beautiful story, they just give you a bunch of free stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so the Shangri-La was wonderfully supportive uh, in this uh, reunion. Canada AM cameras came along as well. Mm. We met in downtown Toronto at Nathan Phillips Square, and Mike walked uh, when he saw me. He walked directly toward me, wow. and uh, he picked up right where we left off the last time we were together and he wrapped his arms around me and uh, he hugged me uh, and I told him that I had no idea how to thank him not just for saving my life that night all those years ago but for being my role model for for giving me my whole life ever since so you know the best thing that I could do was to introduce him to the life that he made possible I introduced him to my wife and to my then two-year-old little boy and He's now my second little boy's godfather, and he'll meet my one-year-old wow. little girl soon. And uh, I talked to him about all the things that I was interested in, all the things I love to do, all my passions, and, uh, and, and I got to show him the life that I had built because he happened to be in the right place at the right time, and because he happened to make the decision to reach out, even though he was scared and didn't know what to mm-hmm. do. He, he, he did it anyway. Uh, And he saved my life and I'll I'll forever be grateful for him uh, for that.
0: I'm sure that I'm not the first to draw the parallel between this and the movie It's a Wonderful Life, in which Jimmy Stewart was on the side of a bridge thinking to end it all and and an angel came along and et cetera and we we, we know that movie.
1: Um, One of the things that's interesting though about that is that for years, for for, uh, more than a decade, um, I didn't believe myself. Uh, I doubted my own story because I had learned to mistrust <laughs> yeah. my own feelings, and this whole angel over the angel devil over my mm. shoulder thing. Like I just, it, uh, it wasn't until he we, we actually reconnected that I believed my own story, uh, which was extraordinary for me.
0: And like the movie, like the movie, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to say you, you had a chance to look back at what life would be like in this world without. Mark Hennick in it, but, but this world, because you are still here, is literally a better place. And I know I for know a f- I, well, no, I know, okay, you're doing what I was doing before, you Irish Catholic. <laughs> Sit there and take the compliment. But I know for a fact that in reading testimonials, in watching your TED Talk, in watching some of your appearances, hearing you now that you have literally changed lives and dare I say, saved lives. That would would not have happened. There would be so many people worse off if you weren't here. And it may not have struck you as that young man standing on that railing, that midnight in Sydney, but it, you know, we, we forget about everything we've been put on this planet for. And it may not seem like it right now, and it may seem so dark right now, but there's still so much that we can do. And yeah. you know, thank God, the man in the brown jacket was there.
1: Well, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. And, you know, that's been one of the most um, useful lessons I think for me in my life is that when I encounter, and I only learned this not just from struggle at the time, but from Uh, relapses over the years it didn't just change overnight it changed very gradually for me and I think what that taught me was that when things get hard I might not know why they're hard I might not even think that there's any way out of this Uh, but it might sound glib this too shall pass Mm -hmm. it's passed before you've survived 100% of your most difficult days so far that uh, now I think, when I encounter struggle, it's not any less hard. I don't deny it, uh, but I can say to myself, I don't know yet what this, how this is going to pan out. I don't know yet what this is going to teach me, or <laughs> in in terms of my professional life that I've developed because of my struggle. I don't yet know yet what article I'm going to write about this or what ta- what keynote talk is, is in this yet, because it's raw material. You know, I, I think it was. Um, uh, uh, his name is escaping me. What, uh, he, he just released a book called Calypso not too long ago. David Sedaris. Mm-hmm. Um, he says this in one of his talks that he does, that he observes the world around him, just notices the world around him. And even if it's really challenging, sometimes even the worst moments in his life, he tries to take a certain detachment and ask himself, what can I do with this? And I think that that's a fundamental mind shift change that's been incredibly helpful mm-hmm. for me, that your life isn't happening to you. It's happening for you. Uh, and when you make that shift, it, incredible things happen. Right.
0: The book is called uh, "So Called Normal: A Memoir of Family Depression and Resilience." Uh, Harper Collins is a publisher. And you can pre-order it through all the usual spots—Amazon in, uh, and Indigo—or uh, just go to com and find out more about where Mark may be speaking next and about uh, about his book.
1: Appreciate this time, Mark. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a real pleasure.
0: By now, you probably realize the first step in preventing suicide is listening and talk. Seems simple enough, but we don't talk about it. Yes, you have to be careful what you say and how you say it, but we still don't talk about it because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. We're warned about saying the wrong thing. But ironically, not saying anything is the wrong thing. So some advice from experts, wait until a calm time, then ask someone point blank, are you thinking about suicide? Tell me what's going on. Research shows this will not push someone over the edge, in fact, quite the opposite. Don't try and solve problems, just listen. Many of those trying to end their lives have said that someone listening to them was all they needed to just step back from the edge. If you have thoughts of killing yourself, it quite often, I am sure, must feel like you're alone and that there is no other choice. Know this, you are important and there is a need for you in this world. And there are many other choices. Don't carry the weight on your own. Reach out. Start with friends and family, crisis lines, a priest, minister, rabbi. From there, it's so important to look for professional help. And yep, there can be a wait, but you're worth it. You matter more than you realize to many people. Suicide. Silence is no longer an answer. We need to talk about it. Take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Please consider subscribing to this podcast and also check out the Happy Molecule Extra. At thehappymolecule.com. There you'll find a link to a video version of this episode. Be able to join the conversation about mental health, learn about our Facebook live show, and get a preview of upcoming episodes. You can email us at thehappymolecule at gmail.com. I'm Aaron Davis, wishing you good mental health.